Hi, everybody. Welcome to this uh, first evening of the Three Things Bible Course with Andy. Andy will be the person you will be hearing most from tonight, and I'm just here to, well, I will participate, but I'm also going to give a little introduction. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for subscribing to our newsletter. We are really grateful for you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it started, um, just a tiny, tiny bit to give you a little perspective about who Andy and I are. Um, Andy and I worked together at Labrie, English Labrie, um, here in England, where I am at the moment. We worked together from 2016 to 2018. And while I was there, I would send my colleagues at, at Labrie these emails every now and then that would tell them about um, books I was reading or um, articles that I've read or things I had listened to that I thought they might find interesting and or helpful um, in the work that we were all doing together at this Christian study center where people were always coming with questions. So then I, I left Labrie uh, to get married in America. Um, and Andy said, I miss those emails. And I was like, well, we don't work together anymore. And he said, well, what if we, what if we start a newsletter? And I, as has been our, our way together, I guess I said, uh, I don't think so. Andy, you want to talk about that dynamic for a minute? Yeah. Philip said no five times. And each time I just took as a, an invitation to ask again, and I slowly <laughs> wore him down. But yeah, that's our relationship, basically. Um, oh, and fill it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is how I was deemed the curator of three things, and Andy was deemed the instigator um, of of this newsletter. So Andy's big thing is in, so basically, I I end up writing most of the newsletter, and Andy sends me text messages a few days before saying you need to write a newsletter. Um, and that's, that's how you get something in your inbox, um, roughly, roughly once a month. Um, I have started explaining it to people is Philip is what you're reading. And I am the fact that you're reading something from Philip. Uh-huh. That's a much more philosophical take on it, Andy, but yeah, that's, that's it's nice. Existence or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so that, that is how we began. And I think we began sometime in 20, 2018 and we've been going since. And thanks to Andy's brilliant instigation, we have around a thousand subscribers, which I never thought would be the case, um, but which is a good way to get free books from publishers. You just tell them you have a thousand subscribers to their newsletter, your newsletter. And they're like, what would you like us to send you? Um, which has been a great pleasure of this, this newsletter for me, at least. So I think that is a, an ample intro, introduction. Um, Andy, um, do you have anything to say before you start? No, let's jump in. Okay. So I'll hand you over to um, the, the wonderful instigator of this project. Thank you all again for being here. So again, this is um, Three Things is just a newsletter. And Philip and I occasionally use it for other things that we're interested in doing. So this is kind of this course six-week thing that we've planned is a test to see if you know if it goes well we might do more things like it so you guys are you guys are our guinea pigs but hopefully you'll get something out of it as well so you have signed up for you've opted into a bible course so you must be interested in the bible otherwise you'd be watching the super bowl right now um, if you're anything like me 
Um, my, I was raised to read the Bible a certain way, and I read it in an almost entirely different way now. So I'm going to share some of the, the new framework over the course of these six weeks, uh, specifically as applied to how to unpack images in the Bible and then see what God says through them from Genesis to Revelation. So that's where we're going these six weeks. We'll spend two weeks on water and two weeks on gardens and the final two weeks on mountains in the Bible. So we, we're choosing those three images and two weeks will not be enough to, to totally encapsulate what God is saying in those images in the Bible, but it'll be a fun ride. We're going to start off with a quote from John Walton. Once I find it. Uh, and just last introductory comment, I'm going to talk for a while, um, and then we'll do Q&A. Please interrupt me. Uh, there's this, I, I'd love for this to be a dialogue. I suspect that you will be too timid to, to make it a dialogue, but this is consider yourself challenged to, to interrupt, and we can digress, and we can chase rabbit trails, and that's fine. But if no one does that, I'm going to just keep talking. So that don't take my continuing to monologue as a sign that you should not um, raise your hand. So you're, you're invited. All right, here is a, uh, before we get into the images, we're gonna do a little bit of setting the table and then we'll put some food on the plates. So this, we've got about 15 minutes of foundational framework stuff to talk about first. Here's a quote from John Walton. John Walton is a scholar at, I believe, Wheaton, and he wrote a book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. And he, he's got a, a series of lost world books. He just picks a different part of the Bible and tells you his view of what's really going on there. And every book starts with the same chapter, pretty much. And it's people trying to, con he's trying to convince people of the things that are captured in, in these couple paragraphs I'm about to read. So if, if you're interested in these ideas, pick up a Lost World book by John Walton and dive deeper. Here's the quote. As people who take the Bible seriously, we're obligated to read it for what the human communicator conveys to us about what God was revealing. The human communicator is going to do that in the context of his native cognitive environment. Our procedure then is first to set aside our own cultural assumptions as much as we're able, then try to read the text for what it's saying. It takes a degree of discipline as readers who are outsiders, not only that not to assume our modern perspectives and impose them on the text, but often we do not even know we're doing it because our own context is so intrinsic to our thinking and the ancient world is unknown. I'm going to drop that in the chat real quick so you can um, mull over it at your leisure but uh, I'll also just go ahead and read it read it again it's it's dense but it is so foundational to everything I'm going to say in these six weeks so here we go again as people who take the bible seriously we're obligated to read it for what the human communicator conveys to us about what God was revealing so by human communicator he means the person or person's who are writing the words in a nutshell. The human communicator is going to do that in the context of his native cognitive environment. So he's, he's not going to write like a person living in 2022 would write. He's gonna write 
uh, with the, the mental framework and the cosmology and the idea set that someone in prehistorical times would, would write with. His native cognitive environment. Our procedure, us as our job as readers, is then to first set aside our own cultural assumptions as much as we are able to. And that, that's a big, there's a big if there. Um, some of our cultural assumptions we are aware of, some we're blind to. So our procedure, our job is to set aside almost like a pair of lenses, our modern cultural assumptions, to set them aside and then try to read the text for what it is saying, try to jump back into the, the ancient cognitive environment. So the, the quote goes on, it takes a degree of discipline as readers who are outsiders not to assume our modern perspectives and impose them on the text. But often we do not even know we're doing it because our context is so intrinsic to our thinking and the ancient world is unknown. So I just wanna make three points about this um, under the heading of the Bible is is ancient. The Bible is an ancient text. We're, we're separated from the time of its writing by many thousand years. Uh, so three points. First point is you're bringing more to your reading of the text than you may be aware of. So when you read Genesis, it is very difficult for you. You can't go back to a, to a reading of the text that um, was before you saw pictures of earth from space. You can't unlearn science and then and then go read the text. Instead, you bring you bring an assumption of you know the Earth is round. Uh, there's Earth and a bit of atmosphere and space, and space is full of stars, and stars are exploding balls of gas millions of light years away. Uh, all that is it's kind of operating in the background as as we read something like Genesis. Uh, that's just one example one example of many. When we read about water in the Bible we can't shut off the fact that we know about the water cycle. We know about evaporation and condensation and groundwater and how clouds form, all that stuff. Uh, we don't check our modern knowledge or cultural assumptions at the door, but we need to learn to recognize them and set them aside momentarily to try, try to step back into the, the cognitive framework of the original communicators. So that's the first point. You're bringing more to your reading of the text than you may be aware of. Second point, God accommodated his communication to the world of the text original readers. John Calvin, a theologian, a Reformation theologian, used to say that God talks baby talk to us. So God could say things um, that were more true, that were beyond our ability to comprehend. But he, he gives us ideas in language that we can understand. And he did that with the Bible as well. He accommodated his communication to the world of the text original readers. Um, <clears throat> the things God was saying made sense to them. Uh, I gave you the homework assignment to figure out, to come up with a description of the rakia in one of the preparatory info emails for this course. Did any of you do that? Did you go explore what the rakia is? English translations sometimes translated as the expanse or the, the firmament. So it's, it's, one of, it's one of those first, it's a word in one of those first sentences in Genesis 1. Uh, the biblical authors understood the rakia to be a solid, a solid dome holding up the waters above. 
So then we have to ask ourselves, is the Bible saying the sky is solid? And how, how do we reconcile that with science? Um, did they really think the sky was solid? Did they, know, did they know that it wasn't solid? Did they think that if, they, if a bird flew high enough, it would hit, it would hit the rakia? Um, and all, all these, you can follow rabbit trails down these questions. But I would just want to pause, pause that line of questioning and reiterate that God, the things God was communicating made sense to them because he was speaking inside their frame of the world. He's speaking timeless truths in, into time. Um, <clears throat> he chose images from their cultural understanding and made sense. And he incorporated these images and these understandings into the meanings that he was trying to convey often um, bending and subverting and twisting them along the way. We, we will look at that a little bit over the course of the next six weeks, when God seems to grab something from even from a, from a pagan culture and plop it right down in his self-revelation, but completely bend and twist it. You, you thought it was this, but actually it's this, in a way to um, trying to shape the, the way his people envision the cosmos. So you're bringing more to the text than you know. God accommodated, accommodated his communication to his original readers. And a last point on this, um, under the category of the Bible is ancient. Those two things mean that the Bible was written for us. And it, it really was written for us. God had, uh, he, he inhabits eternity and his knowledge is without bounds. And it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that when he was communicating back then, he was, he knew all of the other people who that communication would, would come to throughout history. So it is for us, but it is not to us. It was to them back then, to the, to the original receivers of the communication. So it's for us, but it's, it's not to us. Let's revisit that in the q and This uh, table setting introductory bit is going to go very fast and we could dive into all of it and and i hope we do but let me just <clears throat> let me just say three more things um basically my point in the beginning before i before i wanted to take you into the symbol of water i i wanted to say two things the bible is ancient which i'm kind of describing now using john walton and the bible is is literature so i've said three things about the Bible is ancient, and that's completely coincidental. Uh, now I'm going to say three things about the Bible being literary. Coincidental meaning I didn't mean for it to be three things because that's what we call the newsletter. It just, these things just happen. That's very clever. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. Philip's job is to just insert comments like that to boost my ego and do all the writing and hard work of three things. Glad to help. <laughs> Okay, the Bible is literature. So the three things I'm going to say about this are brevity, symbolism, and illusion. Brevity. The Bible, and especially Genesis, and every week we, we will start, we'll spend time in Genesis 1 and 2, because that is where uh, everything starts. Genesis is so dense. Any, any tiny little seeds of images and themes and ideas that begin in Genesis pick up um, speed and momentum like a snowball rolling downhill 
as as biblical as the biblical storyline develops. So Genesis is brevity to the max. Um, and by brevity, I just mean it packs dense layers of meaning into a small amount of text. And once we jump into the symbol of water, we'll, we'll, you'll begin to see what I mean by that. But this just means that as we approach the text, it's useful to read it many times, to let your imagination stretch into it. Uh, the, the image that always comes to my mind is less reading, reading the Bible from start to finish, and then you say, I, I read Genesis 1 this morning for my quiet time, because I read all the verses in Genesis 1. But rather, the image is a bag of tea in, in hot water. Just go steep in it, and steep in it, and steep in it, and notice things, and, and observe, and wrestle with things, um, and be a, be a careful student with soft eyes for the text. Uh, try to set, it, set your presuppositions aside, and, and then see what happens, and do, do that over the course of a lifetime. And that's how Genesis is meant to be read, because it, it has dense layers of meaning in a short amount of text. So the second thing under this, the Bible is literature, or the Bible is literary heading, is symbolism. Symbolism is a, just a figurative use of one thing to represent another, and the Bible is, is full of it. When God, when the Psalms say that God is a rock, you know, we all know that he's not, God isn't a, a boulder. That's not what is the psalm, psalmists are saying. They're saying that God is uh, a high place, which you can take shelter when, you know, in a storm, that God is uh, secure, that God is sometimes a fortress against your enemies. <clears throat> and as we'll see when we get into the, the symbol of mountain and the trajectory of that theme, uh, there's, there's a whole lot more on, under the surface of that. God is a rock ties into this overarching theme uh, that tie, goes back to the first couple of verses of Genesis 1. So there's, there's a lot there, uh, but the way the Bible communicates its meaning is so often through symbolism. Another way the Bible communicates its meaning is through allusions. That's the third thing. Allusions with an A, meaning... Um, one thing refers to another thing. So the texts of the Bible are in constant conversation with one another, not only forward in time, so that the writer, writers of Psalms are referencing Genesis because they've read Genesis, but also backwards in time. So you get, you get uh, moments when something is, is in seed form in Genesis and the psalmists, you get a, a fuller picture of what, what the Hebrew people were envisioning in that moment in the Psalms, which the meaning of that then goes back and is, fills out the seed in Genesis. And we'll see that, we'll see an example of that today as well. Brevity, symbolism, allusion. And this is all far from the way I was taught to read the Bible um, as a child, even in, even in university and even, even in seminary. Uh, I, I had one course uh, with D.A. Carson on biblical theology. And that was just the first, the first hint that, oh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe there's more to the Bible than I was told. And maybe I need to go not only reread it, but relearn how to reread it. Any questions so far? We're about to move on to the symbol of water 
on the sea of chaos. Don't be shy. And remember to unmute yourself if you have a question. And if you have a question, you can also do the little hand icon and we'll see it and I'll find a stopping point and turn over the mic to you. Can you hear me, Andy? I can hear you. Oh, good. Um, actually, just a technical point, your voice is really quiet on my, I, I've got maximum volume. Can you turn up your volume at all? Possibly. How about this? How's that? Is that louder at all? Not really. Don't worry, I can just about hear you. But um, yeah, I'm just going to make a comment that, uh, yeah, where you were before Carson, you know, Carson had an effect on you, it seems to me. Um, you know, I am as well, because I'm kind of rereading the Bible with a fresh um, vista and um, finding it extremely uh, nourishing in a new way. Uh, and I, I'm reading people, for example, Jean-Paul Chetien, I don't know whether you've mm. ever heard of him. He has this book called The Gaze of the Bible and the scripture actually reads you as you're reading scripture. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all you're saying is it resonates well with me. Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. The Bible is such a rich and dense and both accessible and, and inaccessible and enig enigmatic document um, that any framework that assumes too easily that it has it all sussed out is will have a limited shelf life. And that's, that's certainly what I found. Any other thoughts or comments? Let me introduce to you, also, is anyone else having a hard time hearing me? All of you can hear me. Fine, great. Let me introduce you to stepbible.com. So Step Bible will be our guide for the duration. It's a website that is, um, it's, it's just accordance software. So it's, um, you could even go there. I, well, I've shared the screen here. So can you all see that screen? Yeah, we've got Genesis 1 here. It's a wonderful piece of software, and it's free. You just go to stepbible.org or .com. Both of them will get you there in any browser, and you have um, a treasure trove at your fingertips. So you've, you have the whole Bible and lots of different translations. When you hover over a word, it gives you the English definition and the Hebrew pronunciation and the definition. Click on a word. You get a sidebar that pops up that says Rashid first. It occurs 49 times in the Bible. Here are a couple meanings and you can click on those 49 times and see them all. So it's a neat, neat little tool for exploring the Bible. Uh, you don't have to be able to read Hebrew. It, it of course helps you get your head around the grammar, um, but you can, you're, you're not left alone if you can't do that. Uh, you're not left with only the English 
translation these days because there's so many tools like this that you can begin to build your own Hebrew meaning library. And one of, one of the things I want for this course is to help teach you how to do that, the, the steps, the method for your own Bible study. There's a really nice app of it too um, for um, phones that I've found very helpful lately too. Let's start with, we, we've set the table now, let's put something on the plate. Our first week we're going to do the Sea of Chaos and next week we'll do, we'll finish the symbol of water in the Bible even though finish is a bit silly to say because we're just dipping our toe in. I find when I talk about this I just can't stay clear of water puns and idioms. So let's dive in. Here's a question, some audience interaction. You can see on your screen the first couple verses of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, sorry, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, first two verses, how many times do you see a mention of water made? What do you think? I, I will say I can see one of them is hidden. What do you think? Just call them out. I'm guessing the deep is the sort of less obvious one as well as waters. Right, you've got the deep. Mm -hmm. And obviously the word water is there. So the earth was without form and void. That's two. I count three. One of them is hidden. You've found the two obvious ones. And there's no reason that you would ever see the third one because you're not, we're not ancient people. The, the third heavens. one. Oh, sorry. Naomi, yeah? Is it the heavens? That's not what I'm thinking. Although, hmm. if you're thinking of the waters above, yeah. nice one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are the heavens and the earth? That is, that is a whole different course. That isn't this course. Uh, but it would be very interesting. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. What is the deep? Is that water? Or is that something else? Why is darkness over the face of it? And the verse goes on, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Have you ever tried to picture that? What do you picture? Um, and are you sure what you're picturing is what the biblical authors intended you to picture? Step Bible helps with this. Water. Is water really talking about water? It turns out it is. My, the Mayim, the waters. Uh, you can click on it and 526 times the word my or Mayim uh, comes up in the Bible. The deep. Caleb suggested the deep. Looks like that also qualifies as a water word. 35 times the Tehom. What is the Tehom, the abyss? So darkness was over the face of the abyss or the depths, the deep places, the deep, the sea. These are just ways that this word is used in the Bible, meanings of the word Tehom. And oh, this look at this curious little note down here in the bottom of the side sidebar, the grave. Hmm. Interesting. So Step Bible introduces you to all these little um rabbit trails you can you can chase down why is this water word also a grave word the third the third hidden one 
is has to do with some of that John Walton stuff I was talking about. The things that we bring in and the things that we miss because we are not ancient people. Uh, the, the ancients considered the uncreated state as not nothing but as a, as a wild ocean. Does that make sense? So we, when we think of before creation, what do you picture? I picture nothing because I know about things like a vacuum and I have seen pictures of space and I just sub mentally subtract all the stars and matter and stuff and that's the pre-created state. But the ancients did not think that. They envisioned it as a chaotic ocean. So the third, the third mention of water here that goes without saying is that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Um, because before God acted, there was the Sea of Chaos, which is given a name here as the Tehom. Uh, and the Tehom means other things too, as, as we just saw. But first, before we do any of anything else these six weeks, I just want to get into your head. There's this watery ocean, and it is, it is the uncreated state in the sense of pre-creation and it is the uncreated state in that it represents chaos and the throughout the Bible um, creatures of the sea will arise and and make war on God's ordered creation that that happens think about Daniel you get these beasts where are they where are the beasts coming from and they're coming from the sea of chaos so that's one of those Here's the little snowball that gets plonked down the mountain and then it begins to tumble and tumble and tumble through uh, the biblical storyline and gets bigger and bigger and me it accrues meanings the way a snowball accrues layers. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking down the length of the symbol and seeing what this becomes. But right now it's just this formless voidness, which again, I just don't like those words in English because we hear tobu babohu and it's translated as void, and it's, we just think of emptiness and space, and, and it, all, it all makes sense with a, a worldview that's been um, kind of preconditioned by science and the scientific method. But we have to, if we're going to be good Bible students, we have to take off our modern lenses and put them on the table and then try to get into that cognitive framework of the ancient people. And which involves humility, and it involves a willing to to steep in the text, just like a tea bag. So here is here's the introduction to water in the Bible. happens happens on the, the first couple sentences. I think we'll skip exploring the to home. Oh, let's do it. This this is a good example of. Okay, so I, I bumped into the word to home. There's something going on there with water, with, you know, it's the abyss, it's the deep. If you click on to home, and then you see it's used 35 times in the Bible. Um, if you're not a Hebrew scholar, what, what do you do with that? What do you do with this word to home? It's not the abyss. The abyss is an English word, and it's not the deep. The deep is an English word. It is the to home. So there's, it's almost like you have this, this empty bucket labeled to home, and you have to fill it with meaning. How do you fill it with meaning? Well, 
Remember that the Bible alludes to itself and builds its own meanings over time. So one way to start filling it with meaning would be to look at those other usages of, of the word to home. How do other writers who shared the cognitive framework with this first instance of the word to home, how do they develop the word? And so you can take their meanings and plop them down in your bucket, and suddenly you're, be, you're getting to feel a sense of what the to home is. So the first image you have is, is you've got the, the sea of chaos here, and God is, God's spirit is hovering over here. The ruach, the breath of God, is hovering. It's a, it's a moment of everything is poised. Later on, if you click on those 35 times the tahom is used, the tahom is, we're about to see how the tahom is shown its place. Uh, it's pushed down and up, and you get this clear space for God to do his work. But when uh, after the fall, humanity sins, things get worse and worse and worse, and God says, I'm going to reverse the work of creation that I've done and bring back the sea of chaos to, to wipe the earth clean. And then we'll start over. And what comes up out of the ground but the, the Tahom? So when, when God floods the earth with Noah, um, God invites the Tahom back into his creation, and the effect is everything dies. So the, the sea of chaos comes back in. So you, you, you wrestle with that, and you think about it, and you put that in your cup of tea and sip on it, and you think, ooh, that's, this isn't good. This isn't a good thing. This isn't good stuff. Psalm 77, uh, 77, 16, When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. Indeed, the Tahom trembled. So what is it about God that makes the, the deep tremble? And what is it about the nature of the Tahom that means that it is such a thing that when it saw God, it would tremble? This is, this is metaphorical language. It's figurative speaking. But it's, we can use these little moments to, to put, in our, put in our meaning bucket and figure out what what is the darkness over the over the face of when it says the darkness was over the face of of the tahom in Jonah two five when Jonah gets taken by the fish the whole book of Jonah uh, he starts up and he goes down 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 you know down to the ships down to the bottom of the ship uh, and then into the sea and then the fish takes him down to the the roots of the mountains. And he's, he writes, the water, this is Jonah 2.5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The Tahom surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped up about my head at the roots of the mountains. So Jonah, Jonah in his rebelliousness and, and in God's mercy, has his headlong flight from God has taken him into the, into the waters of uncreation. He's gone, he's gone back to the beginning, to the, to the depths. And now you're, you, you remember it said one of the definitions was the grave. So that Tahom became, or the pit became shorthand in Hebrew literature for the grave. So Jonah, Jonah has died, metaphorically. So we take all these instances of Tahom and put them in our Tahom bucket. And that is how you start to figure out what the Bible says. And you, can, you don't have to be afraid of Greek and Hebrew. You can just go just go play. Play with Step Bible. And um, remember that this is an ancient language of an ancient people. And we should you know, re remove our sandals and hold our opinions tentatively. 
as we remain in the posture of learners. But that being said, you can just go, go research. And you can build, build your library of meanings. All right, enough on that. So that's Genesis 1. Most of today is just going to be Genesis 1. And I'm going, we're going to, at the very end, hop all the way to Mark 4 when Jesus calms the storm. And then we'll hop all the way to Revelation 21. And just skip, egregiously skip, so many of the instances of um, the Sea of Chaos in the Bible. But I want to I wanna have enough time for Q&A. And, and if you want to talk about the flood or Exodus or Jonah or things like that, we can circle back around on in the Q&A. But here's the plan. We're going to do two, two other things in Genesis 1, and then we'll go on to the New Testament. So in Genesis 1, 6 through 9, this is a crucial moment for building our, our ancient cosmology our ancient cross-section of the universe as the original communicators of the Bible envisioned it. So if you could slice the universe in half and look at it as cross-section, what would be its layers and what would be its features? Genesis 1 is that cross-section. If you can read it with those eyes, you can it, it builds an ancient universe for you. So Genesis 1, 6 through 9 is one of those moments. I'll just go ahead and read it. And God said, let there be an expanse, that's that word rakia, in the midst of the waters. So remember, there's this, these undifferentiated waters, the uncreated state, and God says, let something exist in the, in the middle of the waters, and let it separate waters from waters. So God opens a space between the waters. And God made the rakia, the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or sky. That word is shamayim. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. In verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So in this little bit that I read here, God takes this sea of chaos and he separates it once. He inserts the rakia, let it be, and separates the waters that were above from the waters that were under. And then he separates it, it again horizontally, parting the waters for dry land to emerge. I don't know about you, but when I read this for most of my life and I got to verse 9, and I read, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. I, I think I imagined waters kind of draining away. Did someone have a comment? I imagine waters draining away, um, like what happens at the very end of your bath. You know, the waters just drain away and all the water's gone. But Psalm 104 gives us a, a snapshot of how the ancient Hebrews envisioned this moment. So this is one of those moments when the psalmist had read Genesis and they're, they're recreating, they're retelling Genesis 1, and then they, we can read the Psalms and go back and understand Genesis 1 a different way through their retelling. So let's just go to Psalm 104 and see what's going on there.
All right, here we are. Psalm 104 is it's a, a hymn to creation, and if you read it, it reads like a poetic version of Genesis 1 in many ways. So let's jump in on in verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep, with the deep, and let's check on this. Sure enough, there's the Tahome again, our friend the Tahome. You covered it with the Tahome as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took the flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. So the psalmist here uh, is envisioning water, mountains, and at your at your rebuke they fled, the mountains rose through the waters. So that there's this sense of when God makes the dry land, the mountains are almost being thrust up through the, the sea of chaos. And if you if you want to envision this again, there's there's a moment um, when Noah is on the ark, there's there's a lot of Genesis one stuff going on. In in many ways he's God rewinds everything and then back to Genesis 1 presses play again and lo and behold the exact same sequence of events plays out you know there's a there's a man and a woman and a family and a garden a sin with fruit the the fall is recapitulated but imagine that moment you're Noah you're in the ark you're floating along you bump against something that something is a mountain and the, the mountains the water stood above the mountains, and your ark settles as the water begins to recede, and you look out through the windows of the ark, it would appear as though the dry land is almost growing as the water recedes, and the, the peaks of the mountains appear, and then the whole mountains appear. Uh, the God makes the dry land shoot up out, out of the water. Uh, it's, so it's more like Hawaii, like the creation of Hawaii. So this Pacific Ocean bursts into an island. So this moment we're stopping on here, God has separated the waters twice. Um, we could dwell on this more, but I think we need to go on. Last bit. I think it's in the 20s. And now we all wait while Holes and Andy's preparation show themselves. Somewhere we've got the sea creatures. I, I'm, I think we should probably press on instead of talking about the sea creatures. I uh, would really love to hear about the sea creatures at least a little bit. The sea creatures are, are important. They're really important. Um, I have a blog I'll send out about the sea creatures. Um, if I can, where's the bit where God talks about he made the sea creatures? The great sea creatures, there it is. 21, yeah. Yeah, 21. We'll just, two minutes, we'll do two minutes on the, on the tanning. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. 
21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves which with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. What do you think those great sea creatures are? And why are they why are they called out specially? You've got the great sea creatures and everything else with which the waters swarm. So the answer, a big fish, probably isn't, doesn't quite get it, because that would be in the everything else with which the waters swarm category. This will be a homework assignment. Click on that word tannin, tannin, and go explore it. It's used 16 other times in the Bible. The word means serpent, interestingly enough. It's one of the words for serpent or snake. Other meanings can be dragon, serpent, sea monster, dinosaur, river monster, venomous snake. What's this reminding you of? Satan. Satan. Yeah. Have you ever read Revelation? The devil, Satan, that, that, that old dragon, serpent. There's all these titles that this evil creature has accrued over the course of um, Revelation all clumped together in one verse and that he just gets named um, all of them at once. So that's there's there's more going on here than big fish. There's also more going on than Satan. There's a lot going on with Satan. What What is the Satan? Um, I, I guess I'd want to just dog, dog ear the, a category for the creature of chaos and the creature of chaos and the forces of chaos. And it's no accident that this creature and these creatures, do what, they live in the sea of chaos. They're water dwellers. Uh, and, and they appear throughout, throughout the, the Bible. We're not going to go there right now. I'll send a blog out about the chaos monster um, when I send out the recording of this video. But the, the thing to note here is God made it. So in, in, this, in this narrative, this is one of those times when uh, the Bible picks up these other contemporary Mesopotamian narratives plops it down in in scripture but totally reverses the meaning uh, in even to say anything else on that is going to be to go too far into a digression uh, it some of it's in the blog but bring it up in the q a if you're if you're burning with curiosity so genesis 1 we've got these three moments of introduction the tahom and what's going on with uh, in the in the first verses, the, what the darkness is covering, the sea, primordial sea, we have the two times separation of the waters vertically and horizontally, as God prepares uh, this create this space to to create an, an ordered space in which His creation can flourish. And by the way, what does He do in that ordered space? He makes a mountain garden. So that's where we're going in the rest of these five weeks ahead. We're going we're gonna to fill in that, that hollow space and, and look at what got put there. And then there's something about the sea creatures going on. And it's, it's where God's revelation is locking horns with anti-God revelations, stories of, of the cosmos, and saying, it. you thought it was this, you heard it was this, it's actually this. I made these things. 
the Psalms, one of the Psalms says, um, you, you play with the Leviathan. You made him and you play with him. Uh, so there's this utter domination of this force of evil and chaos by God. It's not, it's not a dualistic worldview. That's one of the things that's going on with this, these ten in. Now we are going to take a, just a huge flying leap over so much of the Bible and land in Mark 4. We're going to do Mark 4 and Revelation 21 in the next eight minutes. And then we'll do some Q&A and we can revisit things. And it'll be fun. Mark 4, we've got, you can still see the screen, right? Step Bible, great. Jesus calms a storm. There's so much going on with this story. Uh, so much is being communicated in it, which, it's interesting, narratively, you see the apostles get it, get the, the subtext that we miss, because we're not ancient people, we don't, you know, we've, We've taken different meanings from the Bible. We've kind of scooped some of them and left others lying, according to our ability. But they get it, and that's why they have the reaction they have at the end. So let me just read this short story. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So Jesus, Jesus and the disciples are in a storm at sea. But he was in the, Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to them, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? So even with the, the briefest introduction to this, this symbol that we've, we've had in Genesis 1, what, what, what associations are you, are you hearing? What, what Genesis 1 bells is this ringing? There's chaos in the water. In the form of a storm? Yes. The waters have become deadly. Mm -hmm. What else? Just specifically, let's limit it for a second to Genesis 1. You see anything else? Well, just by his word, he's able to uh, command the sea. Mm-hmm. From the land. Yep. Except we can get the land in Mark. And that word peace is hush. It's be quiet, be calm. So he just says hush and muzzles it. That's that's wonderful. Okay, what else? Anything else? That seems to go back to the spirit of God hovering over the waters, that stillness. Yep. Here's the waters, here's Jesus. Okay, that might seem like a bit of a stretch, but it's not. And it comes out more clearly in uh, Matthew 14, when 
for some some reason, why why does the gospel writer say that Jesus is hovering over the water like a ghost? Why do they think he might be a ghost? It's 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 tying in this Genesis Genesis one stuff. So that that I, I would say that that is that was intentional part of the the picture that's being portrayed. And then he says, peace be still. Yeah, calms the chaos water with his voice. And then their reaction is, who is this? Because they know, like good Jews, that the, the thing that controls the water is God. And whoever, whoever is God controls the water. So that, you know, they've seen him do miracles, but... It's just interesting that with this one, you get this note that the, the disciples marveled. And I wonder it's because in their own experience and in the experience of their culture, they have, they know the water symbol. They, they know the meanings front and back, and they know that, that God, God is the God of water. And there's some, there's some connection with Baal as the storm God here as well that we'll leave to the side for a moment. Revelation 21. Any, any thoughts on Jesus calming the storm before we move on? Well, I was struck by the fear instilled into the disciples, and it's the same fear that I get when I read Genesis 1, because I get the fear of oblivion and a kind of a judgment in the water. Hmm. Um, and when you read when I read the Psalms how God uses sometimes water like in Psalm 88 I think it is in waves of judgment um, mm -hmm. so it's a kind of symbol of oblivion to my mind yeah water in the Bible is a symbol of death is, it can be a symbol of judgment think of the flood that God permits the chaos to return as a, as a sign of judgment and they're afraid because they just realized, oh, we're in the boat with God. Uh, that's, that's one of the moments when um, you, you might say Mark's high Christology, that Mark, you know, we di you didn't have to wait until 95-ish when John was, the Gospel of John was being written for Jesus to become this God, God being. He was, al he was already uh, there in Mark. We, it's difficult for us to see, but it's there. That's that's what the Gospel of Mark is saying, that this, this man is God. And so Mark, who is probably the amanuensis for Peter, uh, captures the disciples' reaction uh, as a witness to that. Okay, we're just, lightly, we're just lightly hopping over a few other places just to kind of exercise, to, to show what, what you can do once you have your head around the Genesis trajectory for some of these images. So we've, we're now in Revelation 21. Uh, we have come to the end of the Bible, and we've, we've passed into a different kind of literature, the apocalyptic literature, which we don't have, we modern people don't have anymore. We still have poetry, we still have prose, we still have you know, history, historiography. We don't have apocalyptic literature. So there's, there's liter uh, at least one literature in the Bible that uh, we, it, it's, it's foreign, temporally foreign to us. So you have to learn its rules. Uh, we're not going to talk about that right now, but 
that's part of, part of why Revelation can seem so strange and off-putting. And one of the rules of apocalyptic literature is that it just flashes symbols left and right, which is also why it's so rich when you're reading the Bible following with an eye for the symbols, because the, there, the trajectories are launched in Genesis, and Revelation catches them all and ties them in a knot. So the, Revelation, the end of Revelation is very interesting. And what you see uh, here is in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Let's just pause there. Does that remind you of anything? How does the Bible begin? It's the same. Yeah. In the beginning there was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not an accident. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And that is the first verse of Revelation 21. I don't think that this is, that, that we need to read this literally. And in fact, if we do, we'll be very confused and end up believing some strange things. We need to read it on its own terms, which is as apocalyptic literature, in which symbols, images, concrete things stand for metaphysical realities. So there, if there is no sea in the new creation, there will be oceans. Does that make sense? Like this, the sea that's not there is the sea of chaos. It's the sea that houses the beasts and wants to swallow God's good creation back into itself. And that is no more. It's not, in Genesis 1, he pushed it aside, and in Revelation 21, he casts it out. So the sea is no more, but there will be rivers, and those rivers will flow somewhere and collect. And I, and I think the, the physical reality of the new creation won't look so different, so utterly different than the one that we know and its topographical features. But I'm just speculating. But I, I would say you, do, you don't have to believe there won't be oceans if you want to be fair to Revelation 21.1. I once had a, um, a group of kids on the beach mission and when we got to talking about new creation this was the thing that they latched onto because everyone was having such a great time sort of being on the beach they're like what no see that's terrible and it's sure like well, it while we can what it's saying. <laughs> yeah okay that's all i have planned to say so i turn it over to you i'll stop the share we can see one another. Tell me how all this is sitting with you. Where did your mind go? What are you thinking? What do you want to chase up and dive more deeply into? There you go again. I just can't stop. <laughs> it's illuminating. Very illuminating there. No watery metaphors <laughs> Mm. I'm making connections that I've never, yeah, you've made connections for me that I, I mean, the, the number of times I've, I've, I've taught that story in the New Testament to Sunday school kids, no, didn't go back at all, mm. so thank you. Yes, yeah, and the, the thing that always just opens my eyes and sort of puts me back on my heels about this is that it's all there. Uh, it's, uh, it's once you see it, you can't unsee it. And we didn't even talk about Mark 4 and Jonah. M Mark 4 
even the words of Jonah have been um, just picked up and plopped right down there. It's, it's as if Mark is just saying, look backwards. Here we have a, a prophet asleep in a boat during a storm. Hmm. It's, in, it's that. interesting that you should say that, that it's just there because sometimes I find myself if I'm teaching, you know, in this way, or if I say something like this, you'll sometimes get comments like, are you sure you're not reading into this or something like that? Um, and yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where I, I guess my question for you is, is there a reason why we modern Westerners are inclined to say, oh, you're reading this, you're reading something into this, you're superimposing um, some idea that you have or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess off the top of my head, one reason might be that the meanings don't seem clear. Uh, a modern Westerner would never look at a stop sign and say, you know, the, to the person who stops in front of it, oh, you're reading, you're reading meanings into this, because it's clear, the meaning of a stop sign is stop. Uh, but we we have many hurdles to cross before you know, between us and easily ac accessing this meaning. Um, and unlike a stop sign, the meanings of the Bible are enormous. It's, it's, its meanings are infinitely deep. And that doesn't mean that everything goes. Uh, not everything is, is a correct meaning to draw from it. But you can, keep, you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper because though the Bible is the written collection of human writings, the author behind those humans is God, the infinitely creative mind of God. So you have to take account um, always when you're reading the Bible, the scripture has two authors, both the human and the divine. And the, the divine is capable of weaving many, 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 many meanings into it um, that might not be within the powers of a human. Certainly, yeah, you're, you're in that territory. And I would say that that's also true. You're, what, how infinite are the meanings of Harry Potter? You know, you can mm -hmm. keep reading Harry Potter and seeing deep things more deeply and deeply how much more so the bible um yeah there's more there's more to say about this question this idea that you're reading into it philip i i would like to say <clears throat> so i live in tennessee uh -huh. uh, let, let's just say the kind of christianity that exists here is one that desires to know for sure and not to have question and, and so I think sometimes when someone makes a statement like you just said, it is because they fear the idea that the thing that they have come to have a rock solid, um, they think they have a rock solid clarity of understanding on, you're going to challenge that. And that is very, that's creating a, a significant place of fear for them. Mm. Um, as someone who has left our church <laughs> as a result of these kinds of things um, and are searching for communities like this and others, um, I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, and I, I live in a place where there are a ton of people who believe in a six-day creation, like the world is um, 6,000 years old. This is a common way of belief where I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that even if even if that is true, it is like the the primary and only 
truth that you can grab from this text. <laughs> and if you start trying to grab others, it's you're in dangerous territory, which is, yeah, a sad thing. Yeah, I think there, I think we just ha we have to cultivate a sense of exploration and playfulness when it comes to the Bible. Not that it isn't serious. Uh, it is. It's serious and significant and weighty. Um, but I think we also just have to remember how small we are. Remember how long it takes for people to learn things. And just go explore. And let's say you find something and you think, hmm, there, I, I see a connection here I never saw before. Maybe, maybe you're reading into it. You know, maybe you're just making, maybe it's not there. Maybe you are the, it's completely unintended. So what? Hold it tentatively. Keep mm -hmm. reading, keep learning, um, exploring. Certainly the things that are more corroborated observations and more weighty observations put more weight onto. Uh, but it's okay to explore. Caleb. Maybe. Go ahead, Caleb. Um, I, heard, I heard something helpful from Alistair Roberts, who's written some good stuff on sort of listening to different themes in um, the Bibles. He wrote Echoes of Exodus with Andrew Wilson, for example. But um, uh, there's recently here saying something about how um, uh, we can sort of focus on the Bible so much from the lens of apologetics, of trying to convince um, uh, stuff that will convince that we're right <laughs> um, type thing, that there's all sorts of things we miss because the Bible isn't isn't primarily written to um, persuade the unpersuaded, but to um, uh, edify those who are a seeking God. And so if you are just looking for the things that you can be rock solid certain about, so that's the absolutely the right interpretation. There's all sorts of things in the Bible that it is it is saying, but that you sort of have to tease out and you might hold a bit more tentatively that you uh, learn to hear the tune of different themes uh, in the Bible and pick up on those and perhaps you don't always get it right at first but there's all sorts of stuff that it's doing that um, is, um, isn't operating in that kind of very um, sort of black, black, black and white um, uh, t type way and uh, but it really yeah being, being able to explore the depths without that that pressure of <laughs> um, it, it's got to be um, yeah that sort of apologetics lens on things as important as apologetics can be when approached in the right way so I thought that was really interesting um, that is it, very that is very fascinating and the way you express that I, I haven't heard it expressed that way before that the the Bible's purpose is not primarily to persuade the unpersuaded but to edify those who are searching for or those who are wanting to grasp the truth and i mm. think going back to what brian brian said at least in in a, a lot of american evangelical christianity it's almost like the purpose of the bible the main purpose is to persuade the unpersuaded and once they're persuaded it's it's all good <laughs> um and yeah, what we're doing here, what Andy's leading us through is a completely different, although not uncomplimentary, um, way of reading the text. 
it's also about tuning in our imaginations to hear um hear hear the themes and to be able to mm. pick up on them um i wrote something on my own um newsletter recently about the sort of place of the imagination in sort of reading the bible and then really understanding the bible that we we need to tune our imaginations it's not just a, a sort of um mental exercise in a mm. really rationalistic type way mm. yes what else are you thinking folks andy can i ask a question about biblical theology and systematic theology yes sure and whether you think um the one is one is better than the other. I mean, in my Christian life, I, I suppose being a lawyer, I was attracted to systematic theology. And under that, I would put things like the Westminster Confession, maybe. Because of its neatness, it's kind of getting all um, doctrines from the Bible and sorting them out and putting them into categories. Mm -hmm. But then when you come to uh, approach the Bible on a, in a biblical, theological way, you tend to see that these categories are not as neatly fitting as you once thought. Mm. And it's like a big tapestry with historical development and things like that. Um, and therefore, I, I, I'm of the view that the biblical theology is probably the better way to follow. The, the, the systematics has its value, but um, but can you point us towards that category? I mean, is it valid to even divide them? Like mm. Yeah, I think I, I have I'm of two minds on the question. I think. Well, let's just define biblical and systematic theology, just in case those are new terms for anybody. Uh, systematic theology. Well, here the best analogy I I have come across because I like Lord of the Rings is that sy systematic a systematic treatment of Lord of the Rings is like those Lord of the Rings encyclopedias, where you get you know all the ring lore from A to Z, and so if you want to know about dwarves, you can open up to D and read about dwarves, and so it's this idea that we can take all this knowledge of God and the revelation of the Bible and get all our doctrines and line them up in an, in an ordered way. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. It can be very helpful. If you need to know about dwarves, the best place to go would be you know, get an encyclopedia and flip open to D. But on, on the contrary, the other discipline is called biblical theology. And you can kind of liken that to... Um, reading the Lord of the Rings. So starting with the Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King, and then after that, you know, as you read and reread it, coming to understand how the story of the dwarves plays out over time and, and in a linear fashion in the story itself. So biblical theology wants to look at um, sometimes like themes like we've done, from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes it will it will look at the, the biblical theology of the book of Isaiah. You know, what 
what themes are developed over the course of Isaiah, um, and how does it fit together, and how is it a cohesive unit that fits together with the other cohesive units that it's a part of. Um, does that distinction make sense? So if you sy yeah. systematic approach is kind of taking all everything you all the resources you might need to to build the doctrine of God, whereas a biblical theological approach would be to reading what God does, you know, in in sequence and in and in its setting in the storyline of Scripture. As to which one is better, I think in one way that question is kind of like which which tool is better, a screwdriver or an or a saw. And, and in part, that depends, you know, the job that it's going to be used for. Um, saws aren't good at taking out screws, but screwdrivers are. In another sense, um, I would, I would, I don't know if I'd say biblical theology is better, but in the order of operations, it might come previous, um, or or take a take a higher place that you you understand something <coughs> in its biblical theological setting in its context and and then once you come to understand it more you can lay another framework on top of it and deepen your understanding so I don't know if I'd set them against one another um, they certainly serve one another um, I don't know I, I much prefer personally biblical theology the, theology I find it I was raised in a systematic kind of framework and then have found this quite liberating and enlivening. But they, they're both useful. Anyone else have thoughts on that? I, I have a, a brief thought. One is that I, there's a critique of the emphasis on biblical theology that I've found quite, um, I get, I'm captured by biblical theology much more than systematic theology. But um, the critique is that biblical theology focuses so much on what God has done that it doesn't focus as much on who God is. Mm. Um, and so what you get if you focus on biblical theology is that you get, um, you get less of a focus on the Trinity because the Trinity isn't immediately apparent. Um, and so what can happen is that you're, you're, biblical theology can sometimes seem like you're seem like you're not trinitarian and that you just got to think about that in a different way <laughs> um because it's not immediately obvious to from the flow of scripture if you're reading it as a as a single story um except in key places like the baptism of christ and that kind of thing um and there's also bound up in that criticism is the idea that the the unity of the bible as the revelation of one god will get swallowed up by the diversity of the bible and its various different ways of speaking and so systematic theology is trying to emphasize the unity where biblical theology you get a lot of that diversity so i wonder if yeah uh, my favorite people to read are not the people who are like biblical theology is the best or systematic theology is the best. They're the ones that are able to dialogue very well and to help me hold the unity with the diversity, help me not, um, help me stay Trinitarian without collapsing into some kind of modalism or something like that. And it, that, that can be a tricky task um, at times. So that's why I need help from people smarter than me usually. Well said.
the chat is just blowing up. I was going to say some I'm great things. I, going I on need and... to see this, this, these visual notes here. You people who can do these kinds of things. I'm just, you know, I'm not, not like this. Thank you, Betsy. This is beautiful. Betsy has drawn a preview of where where we're going, where we're going in our in our discussion discussions. A looks like a mountain with a river flowing from it. There's a tree. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about all of this. So also while we're talking about previews, um, next week. Two, two weeks from now, we'll, we'll have these sessions every other week. We will talk about the River of Life and what's going on there. Uh, really, the water in the Bible has a duality to it. It kills you or it makes you alive. So it's either the, the sea of chaos that, uh, that wipes the earth clean again in the flood, or uh, it's the, the water of life that flows from the threshold of the temple and everywhere the water goes everything lives that's a, a quote from ezekiel and this is a real teaser here real trailer for what's coming they they meet in baptism so that you you enter into death in the water you're submerged and you rise up in new life and then you become the kind of person out of which the river of life flows that's jesus and the woman at the well so if you want to dive into, ah, did it again. If you want to learn more about that, uh, come back and we'll we'll look at what's going on with the garden in the garden in Eden and the river in it that splits into streams, and what's going on with the River Jordan and what's what's going on with Jesus's conversation at the at the well where he's he's talking with this woman. And he says, if you knew who I was, I'd give you living water. And what's going on with Ezekiel 14, this river temple? And why is there a river in the new creation? And then that'll close down our uh, water in the Bible. And we'll start at the beginning again with gardens and, and then with mountains. So that's where we're going. I will send you all a recording of this along with some notes, anything that we mentioned. But that's all I have to say, unless anyone has any burning last-minute questions. Thank you very much, Andy. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to everybody. Thank you. Really Thank interesting. You. All right. I'll go ahead and sign off then. Farewell. Enjoy the Super Bowl, whoever's playing. And if you're in America, enjoy the Super Bowl. No one else cares. I always imagine Adam as a canoeist. What a what a lovely image to end on. <laughs> Pre-fall, of course. <laughs> Pre-fall. All right. Take care, everyone. Yeah, thank All you. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Goodbye.